Thank you for listening to CG Life with Steve Quartz. It's my hope that today's message will help you find and live the extraordinary life Jesus gives. After listening to this podcast, I'd like to invite you to connect with me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram for more updates and resources. Mm. Worship was uh, sweet this morning. Anytime you focus on Jesus uh, and you keep focusing on Christ, you begin to get a sense of his presence, don't you? Yeah, it's good. Well, let's continue that. Why stop now? It's great to see you this, uh, this morning. We're going to be looking together at one of the most uh, critical passages of Scripture for the Christian life, I think. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. I invite you to head with me there. I want to tell you why we're going there today, because we're wrapping up, we're ending today our series on stewardship. And uh, we're looking today at the, the single greatest possession God has put within your care. It really isn't your possession. It is on loan to you, and that is your very life. Your very life. And I am praying, I'm hoping that as we come to a close with this series, and as we end with this uh, most important possession, that as you come away today, that you're going to come away with a better understanding of yourself and a better understanding of how you work and uh, how your life was meant to be lived. That's a pretty tall order, huh? For one sermon and four verses. Uh, but let's see what God will do this morning, shall we? You and I live in an age where the battle for our minds has never been greater, has never been stronger. The reason for this, of course, is technology and, and most particularly uh, social media and the smartphones that uh, enable and encourage our contact with them. Uh, I have both, I use both, so I'm not condemning by any means. But that is why the battle, this, there's a, an extraordinary battle for our minds that is taking place constantly. Back in 2020, Netflix released a documentary entitled The Social Dilemma. Have any of you seen it? Social Dilemma? The uh, documentary explores just how dangerous social media is, especially as it's enhanced by smartphones. The documentary exposes the psychological manipulation that social media platforms perform on us whenever we use them. And they interview big tech execs from Google and Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and Instagram. And it shows how these companies seek profit and exploit users by driving more of our likes and clicks and comments and shares. They use intricate algorithms that aim to keep us scrolling on our phones. So we have a hard time putting them down. And it shows how every decision we make on social media, every like and every share is recorded and factored in so that together they decided, they decide 
the next recommended piece of content we're shown. And when this happens, we get sucked into a digital reality that doesn't match the real world. We form an unhealthy addiction unknown to us as more and more of what we want and more and more of what we like is actually delivered to us, but in certain ways. These companies deliberately seek to change. Now, this is important. The way we see reality so that they can change the way we think and thus then change the way we behave. They do it for monetary gain. And the point of the documentary, which I found shocking but, and sobering, is these companies do it for monetary gain. We think we're using a product but the reality is we are the product and we are the ones being used. And we're just beginning now to see how unhealthy this situation is for us emotionally, psychologically, relationally. So in this strange new world of ours, believers and unbelievers alike find themselves in the midst of this great struggle and it is a great struggle ultimately for our minds. Our focus and our attention are the prizes that are sought and, and the reasons for it are clear. Focus and attention are our most valuable possessions for whoever has your mind has you. Whoever has your mind has you. I wonder though if we believers fully understand how unhealthy this situation is, not just for us emotionally, psychologically, and, and relationally, but spiritually. To use the language of the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Colossians, if, the, if believers lose their minds, how many of you have felt like the, the world is losing its mind? You're right, big tech got it. Big tech has it. But if believers ever lose their minds to anything but Christ, they quickly, Paul says, lose their grip on Christ and the nourishment and the strength and uh, the capacity to battle sin that is naturally theirs in Christ. When we pull away from him and our minds are not set on him, we become very vulnerable. And we are taken, this is the way Paul describes it, we are taken captive. Now, while this battle for the mind is, is stronger than it's ever been from a human perspective, here's the reality, it's not new. The, the battle for the mind actually started way back in the beginning when Satan showed up and he said to Eve, do you remember his very first question? Did God say, what was he doing? He was launching the first salvo in an ongoing multi-generational battle for the mind. He wanted to change the way Eve thought and thought about, watch, God. He won that day. 
He successfully got her attention and changed her focus and life direction and yours and mine too. And because this struggle for our minds is an ancient one and because it's urgent too, it explains in large part our passage for today as we bring this series to an end. Paul gives you and I some succinct, clear directions for fending off every effort to take our minds and ourselves captive. He shows us how to steward ourselves well. And God asks us to listen carefully this morning. Let's look at it together. Colossians 3, beginning at verse 1. Paul says, if you, if then, you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, Why? For you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And verse four, when Christ, who is your life? And I love that phrase. When Christ, who is your life? Appears. Then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, Lord God, here we are. We need your help and we need your understanding. Grant, Lord, that we might have insights, not just into your word today, but that we might, by way of your word, have insights into our own lives and our own living and our own commitments and our own ways of living and doing things and thinking about things and loving things and being distracted by things and putting our hope in things. Lord God, would you grant us insight for Christ's sake? Amen. Now, here's what I want you to see from this passage we learn there are four areas of a believer's life that require constant stewardship, constant care, constant protection. Paul says that in light of the battle for our minds and our lives, believers have got to do four things. Here they go. And they're around four areas. They've got to protect their affections. They've got to pay attention to their attention. They've got to beware worldly distractions and they've got to claim their true destiny. And if we'll do these four things, we're going to fend off the attacks. We're going to fend off all of these efforts to control our minds and get, get, get a handle on our lives. We've got to protect our affections, pay attention to our attention, beware our worldly distractions, and claim our true destiny. Let's unpack this. Are you ready? Let's go. Here we go. Here we go. First, Paul shows that good stewardship of ourselves in this struggle for minds and lives requires that believers protect their affections. Do you see it in verse one? And and in protecting, here's something I want you to see. In protecting their affections, believers have got to watch over what their hearts long for. Believers have to watch over what their hearts long for. Paul says, if then you have been raised with Christ, if your life has been spiritually united to the life of Jesus, so that it can be said of you that you're in Christ, that when he died, you died. When he was raised, you were raised. When he ascended, you ascended. That your life is now linked so to his that everything he did is credited to you. Then you can and you should, Paul says, verse one, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. The key phrase here for us is seek the things that are above where Christ is. 
Now, I want you to see right off the bat that seek here doesn't mean to strive. It doesn't mean to strive to possess the things that are in heaven as if heaven has to be worked for. Rather, it means to passionately pursue a greater understanding of those things that are above. So Paul calls for a seeking that is a longing. He calls for a seeking that is a matter of the heart, that part of us that decides what we're concerned about and interested in and how we feel. This longing is a longing aimed in one direction. I guess he's saying in a way, have a one track heart. It is a longing aimed in one direction. It's exactly what we mean when we say to someone else, I love you with all my heart. My heart has one direction just for you. And this seeking in the original language calls for a constant practice of seeking, a persistent occupation with, with uh, Paul says, things above. We might even call it an obsession. Paul is calling for an obsession. And this obsession is with things above. No, this is different from enjoying. There are, of course, many things believers can enjoy and like to, to have and do. Paul told Timothy, in fact, God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. There's nothing wrong with enjoying the things that God has put within our, our reach and our grasp. But there's a difference between enjoying something and being obsessed with it. Some people eat to live and they enjoy it. Some people live to eat. I will confess, I'll just have a, 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 a moment of confession that in my family growing up, we really came close to uh, living to eat. And I never realized this. I just never, you know how when you're born into a situation, you can't see it because it's just so normal until you get married and then your eyes open and God's given you someone to speak into your ear and say things that you didn't really realize or recognize. I remember one time, Cheryl, we were in the car heading away from mom and dad's and she said, do you know something I've noticed about your family? And I said, what is that? She said, whenever your family gets together, you always wind up talking about food. And I never thought about it. She said, Steve, it's so bad that when you eat, you're, what you wind up talking about is what you're going to eat next. <laughs> and I had never thought about it, but she was absolutely right. It's like you sit down for lunch. Well, what are we going to have for supper? <laughs> so it's okay to enjoy things, but we got to be really, really careful uh, what our hearts are obsessed with. And what Paul is saying is that the believer's heart is to be obsessed with things above, spiritual realities in the heavenly realm. Now, what, what are they exactly? Well, Paul tells us here first where they're found. He says, notice this in verse one, the place where Christ is, seated in a place of honor and prominence at the right hand of God. We have here a reference to heaven and the place where God dwells, and we have a reference to his throne, the place from which he reigns. And yet the real focus, if you look at verse one, the real focus is not on heaven, and it's not on the throne, but the real focus is, is on Christ. Christ, and this is important, 
the Christ who has ascended, the one who is now in that place on the throne. After his resurrection, Jesus spent some 40 days with his disciples. Most of you will know this before returning to heaven. But when he did return to heaven, the scripture says he didn't just disappear and everybody's going, where did he go? The scripture says that there was a moment in time when Christ ascended to heaven and he ascended so slowly that they were able to watch him. And when he finally passed out of their view, angels came and said to them this, he is going to return in the same way that he came. And there the scripture tells us when he arrived, he received a glory and an honor that he didn't have before the incarnation. He received a full authority over all things. He who had overcome sin and death is now Lord of all and active on his people's behalf. And that's the picture that we have. So the, the single focused obsession called for is with the crucified, resurrected, and now ascended Christ. It is an obsession, an obsession with who he is, an obsession with where he is. It is an obsession with what he's doing and what he's doing now. Now, this makes perfect sense. This is what you see happening in any healthy love relationship. The one who truly loves is fixated on the one who is loved. Uh, you, they want to know what the other, where the other person is, who the other person is, what they're doing, where they're heading. I love to tell uh, couples in premarital counseling, I say, your lives are about to change. And they just smile and you know, shake their heads like they know what I'm talking about. They have no clue. But they smile and shake their heads like they know what I'm talking about. And, and, uh, and then I love to say, you can't even go to uh, Lowe's to get a loaf of bread without telling the other person what you're doing. It's just true. Now, after you've been married 40 years, you go, I'm going to get some bread. I'll be back. But when you're first married, I'm going to get some bread. I'll be back in 32 minutes. <laughs> Give or take. But it's just natural in that love relationship to want to know who they are, where they are, what they're doing. So you call each other up in the middle of the day and say, how are things going? You doing okay? That kind of thing. So there is this longing to know more of the ascended Christ. And it's not just for the sake of knowing more. It, 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 there's a longing to know more of him personally. And there are good reasons that believers have this longing. The Christ who is above them is the Christ who now lives in them and is the Christ to whom their own lives have been eternally joined so that when he died, they died. When he was raised, they were raised. And, and in some unfathomable way, where he is now, they are as well. His life is theirs. Their life is his. And so it only makes sense that believers would now want to know him more so that they can stay connected, know how to please him, honor him, draw still closer to him in fellowship, become more like him. No one expresses this passion better, I think, this heart obsession for Christ better, I think, than Paul himself in Philippians 3 where he says, listen, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth, nothing better, of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain him. I wanna be found in him. 
I, I don't want a righteousness of my own that comes from obeying the law, but I want a righteousness that comes uh, uh, through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith in Jesus. Oh, he says, that I may know him. I just want to know him. It is the passion of my heart. It is the longing of my heart to know this Christ. I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection life flowing through me. I want to even share in his sufferings because when I suffer for Christ, I know him even better in the suffering. That sounds like a crazy person. That's not a crazy person. That's a person who is in love with Christ. Can you say that? Does your heart know him that way? Is your heart Christ possessed? Is your heart Christ obsessed? I'm going to say this very, very carefully. Be very careful that as a believer, your heart isn't centered on an experience you had in the past. That your heart isn't centered on a certain theology. Theology is very, very important. But your heart must not be centered on it. That your heart is not centered on a certain song or a certain kind of song. that your heart is not centered even on a single passage of scripture. And we must have the word of God. But in the end, if you are a follower of Christ, your heart should be centered on a person. Known through the Bible, known better through theology and exalted through worship, all of those things. But a Christian is a supernatural being who has had a supernatural experience of the supernatural Christ coming into and, and, and indwelling the center of his or her life. And when we walk and grow in knowledge of Christ at the center it's then that we know what it is to say, for me to live is Christ. Christ is my very life. This is what it means to have a heart longing that is aimed in one direction. This is vitally important for in the end, what we long for is what we live for. And the heart's longings or the heart's longing is the gateway to life's behavior. The heart's longing is the gateway to life's behavior. What does your heart long for? In the great struggle for our minds and our lives, believers have to begin by protecting their affections and watching over the longings of their hearts.
But then the question becomes, how is this done? How do you do that? Have you ever tried to tell your heart what to love? It is impossible. It is impossible. You almost wind up saying, you know what? Your heart just loves what it loves. I don't have any choice about it. Well, no, that, that's not actually quite true. I want you to see that Paul shows us there is a way, but there's only one way to direct your heart. And he shows us that good stewardship, the good stewardship of ourselves in this struggle for minds and lives requires that believers also pay attention to their attention. Look at verse two, part A, and watch what their minds are focused on. Paul says, set your minds on those things that are above. Notice, watching and protecting the heart's longings actually requires something. We can't just tell our hearts to love Christ and expect them to obey. Paul shows us that hearts obsessed with Christ are led by minds set on Christ. I'll say that again. Hearts that are obsessed with Christ are led by minds that are set on Christ. And while the heart matters most in terms of driving how we live, the mind matters first because the mind leads the heart. Just as the heart is the gateway for our behavior, the gateway to the heart is the mind. And that's why Paul follows this call to seek things above with a call to the Colossians to set their minds on those same things, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now this call to set our minds is a call to a particular kind of thinking. If seeking things above involves feeling or longing aimed in one direction, setting our minds on, on things above is thinking aimed in one direction or what we might call heavenly focused thinking. To set your mind is to pay attention to, to habitually dwell on and think about a truth or a reality in order to align your life with that reality. If believers are to be persistently obsessed with the ascended Christ, they have to habitually and continuously think aimed in his direction. The one thing that will absolutely transform our worship on Sunday mornings is if you and I habitually live our lives Monday through Saturday, focused, our minds focused, thinking constantly about Christ. Because as our minds are constantly focused on Christ, our love for him will begin to expand. And when we come to sing the hymn of heaven, when we come to sing holy, 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 that love that has been building up and been nurtured as we've kept our minds fixed on Christ crucified, Christ resurrected, Christ ascended, Christ coming again, as we've lived our lives day in and day out in that car line, on the soccer field, in that office, on the phone, waiting, 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 when we've lived with our hearts and minds set on Christ, the love for Christ just begins to bubble up and ooze out. And I'm telling you, when you step into a worship setting, it comes. Have you ever been in a worship setting where you're going, I know this should really move me, but it isn't. And if you've ever wanted to blame the praise team It's not their job to make you love Jesus. But genuine worship is the overflow of a heart that has been led by mind, 
focused and centered on Jesus. Does that make sense to you? And that's why it's so important to pay attention to what you're paying attention to. That's why the first thing you put into your mind every day matters. Have you ever noticed that if you pick up, and I know it sounds like I'm picking on technology and I'm not, but it is a problem. Have you ever noticed that if you get up in the morning, one of the, if you've got a smartphone, you're, you probably have this problem. The first thing you reach for is, yeah. And there's somewhere you almost always go. Have you ever noticed that your entire day can be turned by what you see first thing in the morning? Have you ever noticed this? Do you know why that is? What we allow into our minds in the mornings is very often what our hearts feed on through the day. You start with a really terrible news. You just fed your, your, your heart some fear. Does, does that make sense? I can go on, but I don't really have time. This is so important though. What we allow into our minds in the mornings is very often what our hearts feed on through the day. Is it any wonder that when you look in the gospels and you see the life of Jesus himself, the very son of God, what did he do very early in the morning? Do you know he got away by himself with his father to do what? To pray. If Jesus needed to start his day, his morning, with his father, can you think of anything more important for you to do? Or for me? That's why what we put into our minds each day matters. This is why what we think of God in Christ, what we think and what we know about his nature and the ways he deals with humanity, all of that matters. If what we believe about God is wrong or if what we believe about God is mixed with error, if it isn't true or if it isn't clear to us who God is and how he works, do you know what can happen to your heart? Your heart can begin to flee from him. Your heart can begin to be afraid of him. Your heart can begin to ignore him because you don't really understand or know him. I was talking with a young woman just uh, two weeks ago and she was telling me she couldn't come to church and I asked her why. And she said, because I, I just feel so oppressed when I walk into a church. And I said, why? And she said, because I just feel judged. And, and I said, why? Because I feel like God rejects me. And I said to her, who is this God that is rejecting you? Describe him to me. Now, do not misunderstand me. Our God is a holy God and sin is sin is sin. But what Jesus revealed to us is that our God is full of grace as well as truth. That the broken 
are offered healing, they already stand, we all already stand condemned for our sin. He offers us healing that relieves us of our condemnation in Christ. Is that right? But the problem was she only had half a view of God. She really didn't understand who Jesus is or what he's done. And so when she came into church, she was coming into church feeling condemned by a God who sent a Jesus who only brought additional condemnation, whom she thought wanted her to work her way into heaven. She did not understand the truth as it is in Jesus. And because of that, her heart, close to God because she had the wrong God in view. This is why whether we think about him continually matters so urgently. As we understand more of what God has done for us in the Christ found in the Bible, if we think on these things, they make potent impressions on us. They fill our mind's attention and then direct our heart's affections. Oh, loved ones, let me say this to you. The less we focus on, the less we grasp Christian truth, the less difference it will make in our lives, and the less impression Christ and his truth make on us, the less impression we make on the world. One of the abiding lessons of church history is that when believers lose touch with Christ, when believers lose touch with his truth, when believers find their minds focused in one direction on anything other than Jesus, when he fails to dominate their thinking, they inevitably end up imitating the world and it isn't long until believers are as broken as the world around them. So we've got elections coming up in two weeks. And we're seeing red and blue. And what can happen so easily for us is that our minds get fixed, our minds get trained on an election. And guess what happens? We look just like the world. Scrambling, fighting for power. Now you should vote. I'm gonna vote. I need to vote this week. I think it's still early voting still available. I need to do that. I need to go. I need to do that. It's my responsibility as a citizen. But you and I, we have in a declining country and in a declining culture, we have to work really, really hard to pay attention to our attention and not let what's happening right now rob us of him who sits over what is happening right now, which leads us to our third insight. Do you see it? I love this. He says, 
not just that we should pay attention to our attention, but he's saying we should beware all earthly distractions. Look at verse 2b, the end of that. He's saying basically, watch what your eyes and ears tend to linger over. Paul says, set your mind on things above that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Paul knows that the great thief of our attention is distraction and distraction comes from what our eyes see and what our ears hear and the ideas we glean from both. And so Paul gives in the second half of verse two, a negative command that's essentially don't set your minds on earthly things. Don't, don't set your mind on things on this earth, those kinds of things that human humanity commonly desires for finding and keeping life. There are things that so easily become for us God substitutes and saviors, things that our world promotes as making life worth living and able to protect and preserve it. The force of the command is this. Listen, anything, any person, practice, idea, political party, teaching that distracts a believer from focusing on or thinking about, paying attention to those things that are above where Christ is, they've got to be refused and rejected and run from. Do you know how, re- how, how distraction works? So here, Cheryl and I, were walking down the street in Charleston, South Carolina, where we lived for about five years. We go back down every now and then. We're walking down the street in downtown Charleston, South Carolina. Have any of you ever been there? All kinds of shops and stuff. It's, 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 in the summer, it's hot and crazy. And every other time, it's just crazy. Just all kinds of shops. And so we're walking down, we're minding our own business. And a woman calls out from a shop over to Cheryl on the other side of a very broad street and says, hey, Where'd you get your purse? Well, my wife is an extrovert. She'll talk to anybody. So she said back, Amazon. The woman called back to her and said, wow, I like that purse. I'd like to get one for my mother. In other words, you got an old lady's purse, ma'am. We didn't figure that one out till later. (laughs) She said, can I see it closer? We had no intention of going into that shop. We didn't even know what the shop was, but we crossed the street because Cheryl's an extrovert. She'll talk to anybody. We cross the street, we wind up at the door. She come, we we come on into the shop and suddenly I go out of the shop because I'm, I'm wanting to get on with the day. And there's Cheryl in the shop. Do you know what happened? No, actually, she didn't spend money. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. She gathered herself at the last minute and did not spend a dime. But she got, we got, we got distracted. Our minds were set on one thing And notice how this works. Notice how this works, will you? First, something attracts our attention. Hey, lady, where'd you get your purse? And then it redirects our attention so that it has a real chance to captivate our heart's affections. This is how it works. Can I see your purse? And once it's captured our heart's affections, it wants to capture us. We wind up in the store. 
And see, this is why the psychological manipulation of social media platforms on us when we use them is so dangerous, especially for believers. It not only affects us physically and emotionally and psychologically, but it does affect us spiritually. Because what happens is we're encouraged to look hard at earthly things and what others have and the experiences they, they have. Oh, I wish I had that vacation. Why doesn't my kitchen look like that kitchen? Why are my children not clean? Like this woman's children are always clean. Every picture, their children are clean. My kids are never clean. It attracts us, distracts us, redirects us, captures us. And before we know it, we're living just like the world saying, if if only my house were perfect, if only my kids were perfect, if only my wife were perfect, if only I were perfect, if only, if only, if only, and we're captive. This process of distraction can be quick or it can unfold over time, but it is possible anytime and it happens all the time. Beware the ever-present opportunity to be attracted, distracted, redirected to earthly and temporary things as if somehow they're precious and life-giving. Let me just tell you this. There are certain things that really attract you. They're different from mine. That if you hear about them, if you see them, you're, you're, you're very tempted to linger there. You're very tempted to shift your attention there. And I don't know what yours are, but I'll tell you this. If you're going to be a good steward of of your most valuable possession, you must know what those things are. Do you know what those things are for you? If anything is going to shift your attention from Christ, if anything is going to, to try to get between you and an obsession with Christ, do you know what that would be? What would that be? Oh, for some of us, it's a negative comment. It's someone blocking us on whatever. And it sends us to a dark place. There there is something, there are probably two or three things that for you are are almost ready-made distractions. If they come into your life, they trigger you, they, they cause you to go away from Christ. Do you know what they are? We should ask God by his spirit to show us what those great and most likely distractions are for us. We, we should know them. We should watch for them, flee from them. Because every time we start to linger over them, we get into dangerous territory and we shift our attention from the Christ who is our life to something else. And we're captive. Beware of those worldly distractions. Watch what your eyes and your ears tend to linger over. Finally, look at verses three and four. Paul shows that good stewardship of ourselves in this struggle for minds and lives requires believers to claim their true destiny and watch what their hope is set on. Paul says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Here, Paul gives the ultimate motivations for watching over our affection, our attention, and our distractions. 
He says that because believers have died with Christ, because they've been united to Christ, two things are true. First, their lives are now forever hidden with Christ in God, hidden in a safe place, hidden in a place where nothing and no one can touch us or take us. We can be held captive, but we can't be kept forever. The second thing Paul says is, because you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. The same Christ who is the source of forgiveness and protection and new life, he is also our end or our true destiny. And what that means is there's coming a day when the one who is hidden to this world, that um, our world cannot see. There's coming a day. I call it the great revealing. There's coming a day when Christ will appear. And, and on that day, believers will be with Christ Jesus physically like they are right now with him spiritually. John says, we shall be with him, we shall see him as he is, and we shall be like him. Paul says that when Christ, who is our very life, appears this second time, he will appear in glory. His appearance will be an appearance in a state of glory, of divine perfection, of wholeness. And when he does, Paul says, all believers will appear with him in that same state. Do you see what this means? It means there are good reasons to make certain that you know what it is your heart longs for and what your mind focuses on and what your eyes and ears linger on to make sure that it is Christ alone because there is coming a day, a final transformation into the image of Christ for you and for me if we're followers of Christ and everything that is marred and everything that is twisted and everything that is broken in us and has been by the fall and by our sin, one day is going to be restored and made a whole. The image of God in us is going to be made perfect for in Christ and with Christ, we're going to share that image. And that means that every day, today, every today is a day of expectation and a day of preparation for that day. Our hope is Jesus and Jesus is our hope of glory. So Paul says that in this struggle for our minds, believers can and must claim and keep claiming their true destiny, our true destiny, and watching what our hope is set on. We need to keep saying to each other again and again, remember where we're going. Remember who we are. Remember what we're about. It is Christ. It is Christ alone. We don't have time to be seeing red. We don't have time to be seeing blue. We do have time to vote. We do have have time to care, but we do not have time to be dominated by things that 25 years from now will not matter and, uh, and, 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 and into eternity will have no consequence. We need to live reminding ourselves and saying to ourselves again and again, remember who you are. You've been bought with a price. 
When he died, you died. When he was raised, you were raised. When he ascended and was seated at the right hand of the Father, you actually were given a place with him right there in God's presence. We need to keep reminding ourselves and reminding each other that there is a day coming when the brokenness I see in you and the brokenness you see in me will no longer exist. And I'm going to be whole, you're going to be whole. Joy is going to be real. Nothing will be able to get between his joy and us, his love and us, his presence and us. And he will, watch this, wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more death. There will be no, no more falling down and struggling to get back up. He's our hope. I love what the hymn, the old hymn said, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground, shaking sand. Mind your heart. Pay attention to your attention. Know and beware of your distractions. Claim and keep claiming your destiny. And the day will come when the Father will say, You did really well. You did really well. Enter into the joy of your master. I'm living for that day, are you? I long for that day. So with heads bowed and eyes closed all across the room. Would you ask God to show you your heart and what you're longing for? Would you look at this past week and take a quick honest appraisal of what your mind's been fixed on? 
whatever your mind's been fixed on, remember your, your heart's been feeding on. It may explain why you've been so full of anxiety or anger or frustration. What's distracted you most? What has been your hope? What have you been saying? Oh, if only. If only. Listen. You may be like the young woman I spoke with a couple of weeks ago. You may be one of those whose heart has been running, running from God, afraid of Him, afraid of being condemned, overcome, overtaken, beaten down. Jesus said, I came that they might have life. They might have it to the full. That's why I came. You need to know me as I am. By owning your brokenness and your sin, the fact that you've gone your own way and had your own say with your life, he simply asks that you own that, confess it, turn from it. You put your faith in Him rather than in yourself or anything else. That you come to Him with open hands, bringing all of your past, your present, and your future, giving Him your life. If you'll do that. He'll become for you. A love worth having. A hope worth living for. And he says to you today, come to me. Now, Lord, do the work that only you can do in the hearts and minds of believers. Lord, there are believers in this room today who've been are captive to something they need to be set free there are others who've never come to a living personal relationship with Jesus they need to be set free and I pray that today would be the day when they would take that step to freedom in Christ Jesus I pray and ask it in Jesus name Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoy these podcasts, take a moment to rate and review CG Life with Steve Kortz. My prayer is that God will continue to inspire and challenge you in Christ as week by week we apply the gospel faith to real life.